0: When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan.
1: The sweet, pretty things are in bed now, of course. The city fathers, they're trying to endorse. The reincarnation of Paul Revere's horse. But the town has no need to be nervous. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about 1965's Tombstone Blues, of course, from the classic album Highway 61. Revisited is fellow Bobcat, Derek Dashke. Hi, Derek. Hi, Rob. Great to be here. It is great to have you on the show. I am really excited to talk about the song. Unbelievably, we have not gotten to it yet. I After. couldn't believe it myself, yeah. <laughs> Two, 230 plus episodes. You know, surprised that there's anything from Highway 61 still left to do, but yeah. there is. And this one is just such a total blast. And I said, I'm really excited to talk about just reading that opening oh. couplet got me excited. I was like, oh yeah, this is just such a fun song. Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> but before we get to that, you know, Derek, how'd you become a fan of Bob?
0: Well, um,
1: I can thank my,
0: my friend, Paul's brother, who had won tickets to Dylan and Tom Petty at the Meadowlands Arena in, uh, this would have been 80, uh, uh, 85, I think, and he couldn't go because he had a softball game, so he gave them to his brother, brought me, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and when we got there, we realized they were sixth row center.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And
0: so, you know, with that, I mean, I knew who he was. I knew the big songs. Um, But you, you don't come back from that uh, the same person.
1: Certainly not. Holy jeez! No. Yeah. Did you have, did I, you I just... was
0: close enough to see all the times that both Dylan and Petty would light cigarettes stick them in the neck of their guitars and then Ugh. forget about them.
1: Oh, my God. That's yeah. amazing. Now, so did you have any inkling about what to expect i mean tom petty in 1986 was at the moment the bigger draw yeah because he was massively obviously massively popular in the 80s you know coming after you know hit after hit so he yeah. was probably a, you know that you knew what you were getting and i don't mean this in, in any sort of negative sense but even the most casual observer of, of popular music would know what to expect at a Tom Petty show in nineteen eighty six. You know, right. I'm gonna hear I'm gonna hear American Girl, I'm gonna hear Breakdown, I'm gonna hear Don't Don't Go Dragging My Heart Around. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be a fun time. But Bob Dylan, 1986, a little more of an unknown variant. No, so did you did you have any inkling of what to expect?
0: I, I think only like inkling's probably as good a description as any. You know, um I I was born you know at the tail end of the sixties and and I just gravitated towards that era of music. And I, I, my first love really was the monkeys. Monkees. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was able to to also wed that with the Beatles and, and sure, of where I was musically. But I was open to the 60s and all the ways that a, a kid growing up in the 70s would be. And so, you know, I... I I knew what to expect uh, from a Bob Dylan song, but not a show at all. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I'd been to a couple concerts before. I had seen the the Kinks and uh, I think I saw George Thorogood a couple of times in the same arena. Um, So I didn't really go in with any uh, preconceived notions, but I loved the idea that it was um, uh, Petty and Dylan together, and that Petty and Heartbreakers were his backing band. And I thought that was a real interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be familiar with the, the, how the, sh- the show was structured. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. So they would play, you know, a full set and then and then Dylan left and then Tom Petty played a full set. And then Dylan, Tim, Petty and Heartbreakers left and Dylan came back and did an acoustic set. And then they all came back at the end. And I, um, I'll say, you know, I've seen him. Um, uh, we'll talk more about this later, but I've seen him four times. And that's uh, even though it's the first show I've seen, it's the one I remember musically the most.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, that's again yeah. it's a huge, yeah. huge thing. He was doing a lot of covers during that yeah. during that time. A lot of like fifties rockabilly covers and stuff. Uh, I i I've, I've I've obviously never went to one of those shows, uh, but have some bootlegs. And there's sure. a lot of really great stuff there. He really yeah. seemed to sink his teeth into those like Ricky Nelson songs he was singing and things like that. So, um, do you do you remember? Right. Can you remember the experience of like? what it, some of the stuff that he sang really stuck out to you
0: well the one that i really have a super clear memory of is rainy day women number 12 and 35 mm-hmm. and i think i had not even heard that song before and um that was what i i will remember for the rest of my life there um i did have to go back on the um the setlist.com or whatever that is and say now what did he play then <laughs> And I, you know, it, I, I knew I was going in prepared that most of the music was just going to kind of wash over me because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really deeply into the catalog at that point because I was 17 or something. But, uh, you know, looking, looking at the set list, there was, there was a pretty good, um, it was a pretty good show. And then it was, um, you know, I went to college pretty soon after that, and you know, like every good kid in the, in college in the eighties, I got really into Dylan. And I think at the first album I bought was um, the the Greatest Hits Volume Two, which I thought was turned out to be a really good kind of overview of a lot of the work he'd done that wasn't part of you know the sixties repertoire at
1: mm-hmm. that. Time. Yeah, uh,
0: and I loved every song on there. And that, I think that really just opened up my mind what Dylan could be. And then I, I think I bought uh, Highway 61 and uh, bring it all back home together. And then I think the last one I bought in college was uh, Freewheeling. Mm. And I kind of stuck with all of those for a pretty long time. I, uh, I in that period of time, I did write a, a college paper on Bob Dylan and the apocalypse, which I'll have some thoughts on this song <laughs> from that paper. Which I, I did subsequently get to present at a conference and and get published, so I'm a published uh, Dylanologist.
1: Nice,
0: yeah. <laughs> but I I thought that was you know it it is the late '80s, and uh, you know even that show I saw with Tom Petty that was for Knocked Out Loaded, right? Which I don't even know if he played anything off of that album for. So he was sort of in the. Um, in the uh the dangerous position of being coming kind of an an oldies act right
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and then um the willberries happen and I know uh, I know that's one of your entry ways
1: you, it's, it's the on ramp absolutely It's the
0: on ramp and boy I loved everything about that album and um and i I think it just started me thinking about Dylan in a in a whole new way and then the um the bootleg series, the one through three came out, and all of a sudden I was like, Where's this been my whole life? <laughs> Once that happened. I was like, I was hooked. I was way hooked. I I was dealing for Halloween one year. I,
1: <laughs> what era, yeah. Bob, were you? Oh, where did I, you go? I did
0: the, um, let's see, for that, that, that was high, Highway 61. I tried to get as close to that album cover as I could. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, I great. even did, I did earlier, I did a uh, pose for a picture with my girlfriend to, to emulate the, uh, the free Willin', uh album cover as well. So oh, very
1: I, nice. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. So, okay. You mentioned you've seen him a couple other times. What were the other experiences? Uh,
0: a couple years later, I saw him came to uh, Came to my college campus and it was um, something of a greatest hitch tour. So that was really, mm-hmm. then it wasn't until I was in Chicago and in 97 or 98, he played, at the United Center. And what was exciting about that was actually Joni Mitchell opened for him.
1: Wow. Yeah. That- yeah. And so <laughs> that's a hell of an opener.
0: <laughs> that is a hell of an opener, you know. And it was like, oh well, I'll go see Joni Mitchell. And just there's there's also this guy playing after her that I might want to hear again. <laughs> and then, and of course, that was right after Time Out of Mind, and there was a, a real nice uh performance pulled iron bound i got a big uh, shout out for the chicago reference and then the last time was um uh played in columbia missouri which is close to where i live and that was after that would have been 2004 and so after love and theft which um is is one of my top 3 favorite uh, dylan albums and uh and i you know now i'm, I'm kind of itching to go back and see him again now that i've been listening to your show but uh but I feel like I I, I hit him pretty good. Um, I'm just real curious to see see what he sounds like these days
1: So They're wonderful shows when he's he's wrapping up the European part of the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour. But as yeah. they as they say, it's going to go all the way into 2024. So he most certainly is going to swing to America for sure uh, at least one more time. So hopefully yeah. you'll get a chance to see him because the Rough and Rowdy Ways show was unbelievable. I mean, just sure. absolutely unbelievable stuff. So. Uh, well, that's again, you, you know, in a handful of times, but you really managed to clock in some very memorable experiences. That's yeah, really cool. I sure did.
0: And especially since they were off, off of great new albums, you know, and um, yeah, and I, I really appreciated getting the opportunity to see all that material live when they came out.
1: Absolutely. Uh, just related, if my memory serves me well, uh, when it, regarding Knocked Out Loaded, I think Bob sang one song one time. Okay, from knocked out loaded. <laughs> he said, "Got yeah. my mind, I believe he sang "Got my mind made up," on like the first night after Knocked Out Loaded came out or something, okay. and then he never did another song.
0: From that, that that checks out with my experience. <laughs> I think
1: <laughs> I'm sure Columbia Records is like, "Thanks for promoting the record." Yeah. you know, okay, that's so yeah. great. So, <laughs> so um, all right. Well, let's let's talk about Tombstone Blues. I mean, again, this is just such a fun song and I so definitely fun. want to, I definitely want to hear about this Bob Dylan and the Apocalypse yeah. uh, piece that you wrote. So I mean why why this song?
0: Well I think let's start with it is it is it is a fun song. Um, it is rollicking I think is the best word to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a such an interesting contrast coming I think after uh Like a Rolling Stone, which is so focused on a person who and, and that person's social circumstances. And then this one comes out, and this is about you know basically everything else, and it has this kind of hypnotic beat to it, with all of these um, surreal non sequiturs, and there were, I just kind of got transfixed by it, and in a similar way that that I think uh, Desolation Row works, but um, you know Desolation Row is so much more, you know, it's a lovely tune with lovely guitar and um, almost kind of languid here at the end of the world. Mm -hmm. I I was listening to this the other day and I felt like the experience of listening to Tombstone Blues is like um, falling downstairs and trying to catch yourself. And just as soon as you catch yourself, you start to fall again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that you uh, mentioned Desolation Row, because I had that in my head of like, to me, this song is sort of the I don't want to use comedy, the comedy version of Desolation Row. Yeah, certainly the lighthearted version of Desolation Row. And it almost—if you—if you you want to say Highway 61 is a—is anything like a concept record, which yeah, yeah, come on, it really isn't. But but if you if you want to make those threads, you could sort of see the the narrator of our of this record, the guy who's traveling Highway 61 and surveying America as it exists in 1965. He sees all this craziness in tombstone blues and he's it's funny you know it's it's sardonically funny Uh, there's a lot of grimness in this song but it's delivered first of all as you mentioned that beat is so memorable the tune is so melody is is so catchy but it's it's delivered with this sort of wry sarcastic kind of feel to it and the guys having kind of a laugh but by the time he goes through all the experiences of the record and he gets to desolation row this is not funny anymore. No. You know? <laughs> like it's like, yeah. oh no, this is I've been through a lot and now I'm here on Desolation Road. But the guy in, in Tombstone Blues, he's having a good time surveying the, the craziness that he sees around him.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um it's it's what I noticed was that um, you know, the first couple of verses are really about you might even say a small town life, but things are breaking down there. Um, and I think the middle portion is um, obviously reflecting uh, national experiences with an ongoing war, uh, and then there seems to be this take on education and culture. So um, there's just everything's broken. To to quote him later on in his career, <laughs> things falling apart.
1: Yeah, he's all these uh, people from American culture. Or not even American culture, world culture, world culture, yeah, are all just poured into this big stew. I mean, again, that second verse—it's the ghost of Bell Star. She hands down her wits to Jezebel the nun. She violently knits a bald wig for Jack the Ripper, who sits at the head of the Chamber of Commerce. And again, you know, good luck trying to make any sense out of any of that, uh, other than the most emotional kind of level.
0: Exactly, and uh, you know those are all such such great lines. I, I think, especially in those first two verses, that um, it, it, they're focusing on these city fathers and this chamber of commerce, and and who do they have there? They have they have a reincarnation of Paul Revere's horse, and they have. You know, the ghost of bell star and jack the ripper and jezebel and i don't know what kind of city you're running but don't make jack the ripper the head of your chamber of commerce yeah
1: no that's bad that's real that bad is, yeah
0: that is bad yeah um, don't give him I, any authority i i presume that you're familiar with the weird al yankovic uh song bob of course no i'm not really no oh yeah so in 2020 i uh, t- uh, sorry 2002 He was playing around with palindromes and he put together a bunch of them and he says, well, I've got something that doesn't make any sense, but it sounds like it should mean something. Oh, I've written a Bob Dylan song. (laughs) This is how he introduces it on tour now. And um, it's 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 mostly cribbing the tune from Bob Dylan's 115th dream, but it is Nothing but palindromes sung like Bob Dylan in that 60s era. But I think that's really the attraction to songs like this is it's it, it doesn't sound like it means anything, but it sounds like it means something. And that's <laughs> fun in, in, in putting that together. It's so close to sounding like it's adding up to something. And then yet maybe it's not.
1: Right. <laughs> I, I mean, how does one violently knit? Exactly. By the, you know like it, it sounds ominous uh yeah. or like it's supposed to mean something but when you look at it you know, what what what, what, like, what she's knitting what, is
0: a bald wig for jack the ripper you know I'm yeah just, how does
1: right a bald is that a wig that's of no hair like what does yeah. that, You know. but like again he's, de- a- he's delivering it with such style and such bravura that you don't think about it you know it just yeah. flies by um, and you mentioned, you know, of course, this comes after Like a Rolling Stone. Imagine trying to find a song that could follow Like a Rolling Stone sure. on a record. You know, imagine that. Yeah. Obviously, he, Bob, was at his peak powers in 1965. Uh, I guess one of many uh, iterations of his life that he's been at his peak powers. And so we had a lot of songs, great songs to pick from. But any song that you put after Like a Rolling Stone, you are kind of putting behind the eight ball a little bit. Yeah. because how can it possibly live up to the energy of what you just heard and yet this does in a completely different way you it know does. It, kind of it takes its own path
0: and i almost want to say that this song is sort of sets the path for the rest of the album um, in a way that like a rolling stone does i think like a rolling stone's almost sort of a uh, a mission statement mm-hmm. but what the rest of the album's going to look like it's 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 sort of this chaotic um tour through culture that you get starting with tombstone blues. And, and I I think it's interesting that uh, yes, as we, you know, as, as your listeners who have talked to you about almost every other song on the album now, you you know, there's many of them that kind of stand out musically and, and lyrically. And I almost feel like there's kind of under the tombstones blues is kind of underappreciated for what it does there. But I, I, think that it's one of the songs i have virtually memorized just upon repeated listenings um and there's something about the lyrics that so easily stick in the brain i, I find myself you, quoting these lyrics all the time if somebody's <laughs> making a big deal of something i'll say uh i say uh, you will not die it's not poison <laughs>
1: Uh, what's the reaction when you say that? <laughs> oh, they just go, look blankly at what? me. What? Uh, what? what? Uh, uh, okay. Uh yeah. So we've got the refrain here. The mom's in the factory, she ain't got no shoes. Daddy's in the alley. He's looking for the fuse. I'm in the streets with the tombstone blues. Again, not that we can and really try and pull this apart because I don't think it's really I don't know. I don't think it works in that in that context. But the refrain, I mean, he obviously he says it multiple times throughout the song. This is the closest you get to any sort of chorus. Is just the idea of, you know, the 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 authority figures in this person's life are off. They're dissolute. They're off, and they're busy. They're not there to protect you anymore. Your mother's in the factory. She's your mother's in a factory, and she ain't got no shoes. That sounds kind of bad. Yeah, that's bad. Daddy's in the alley looking for the fuse. I mean, who didn't, who the hell knows what that means? But they're distracted. They're yeah. not. They're not there to protect you. And as much as Bob, I mean Bob, how old is he when he does this? He's twenty four. He's twenty four mm. when he's mm. writing this. You know, I mean, he would have been out of uh, out of Minnesota for a, little, a while, but he knows he's speaking to a young audience that is feeling that way. You know, it's feeling that way of like the old senses of the guardrails are being broken down, and we're all trying to figure out what life is like in this new right. paradigm, and, kind of.
0: And and what's at the end of that is as a tombstone. Yeah. And I, it's it's funny, but this you know this this kind of specter of death hangs over the whole thing, and and I was going to ask you, Rob, uh, what do you make of the fact that you know the official lyrics everywhere say that Daddy's looking for the fuse, but listening to the song on the album, it sure sounds like it just says he's looking for food. I I can't pick out the fuse from the way he sings it.
1: Yeah, I sometimes I I, I when I read these words, I'm like, does he say fuse? And there's sometimes where I'm like, okay, I guess you could hear that. But I always. Yeah, I think he always I think when I hear it, he's he's saying food, food. And I think
0: food's even more dire. Right. You know, if you're going to want it's one thing if he's looking for the fuse, because that suggests, well, you know, lights are out, but he's going to seeing if he can put them back on. But if he's scrambling for food in the alley, he's even worse off than mama
1: yeah that's yeah that's real bad um <laughs> yeah. so then he goes on he says the hysterical bride in the penny arcade screaming shimons i've just been made then sends out for the doctor who pulls down the shade and says my advice not let the boys in yeah uh, now there, it's some again kind of an ominous thing it's a it's a hysterical bride who has maybe been assaulted By somebody Mm -hmm. uh they've just she's just been made again it depends on how you want to how you read that you want to read that but it just been made could be and then you know the doctor pulls down the shade which suggests again again, a sort of like a private consultation and then my advice is to not let the boys in uh which is you know like well thanks you wish you should have told me that Mm -hmm. earlier you know, yeah. you're telling me that now. It's not doing me any good. We're closing but again, the barn door. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, you know, the idea of it's why is there a bride in a penny arcade? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I almost feel that that's just meant to be an old timey reference. It doesn't have any yeah. meaning outside of that. But it's it's kind of a it gives you a it, it paints a picture in your head. That, you know, it just, more than just nothing's putting it where in a,
0: it should be in this song. Yes. You yes. know, and it starts in the most normal of places, but then nothing should be there. Jack the Ripper shouldn't be there. And Paul Revere's four shouldn't be there. And a, a, a historical bride should not be in a penny arcade. So, <laughs> you know, nothing is as it should be. And yet there still seems to be doctors and chambers of commerce that are trying to make just make things work as normal.
1: hmm. Mm hmm yeah oh
0: yeah 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 and then right after the doctor you get a medicine man so now somebody else is going to come with a a different uh tack you know there's just this episode with this with this bride that is you know in some ways trying to get her to calm down by minimizing her experience Mm -hmm. you know stop all this weeping swallow your pride you will not die it's not poison and um You know, maybe to some degree that's trying to get the, you know, the the protest uh, culture to uh, step back a notch. I don't know. You know, Are are things as bad as they seem or or are these unreliable doctors and medicine men are saying, well, you know, you're right, but don't talk about it.
1: Mm, Right. More authority figures that are not not helping
0: yeah stop all this weeping swallow your pride so it's saying well yeah you're it's your pride that makes you cry like this it's nothing we've
1: done right exactly yeah it's like well this is not she's just been made this is not her pride she's talking about so yeah uh and then he goes back to the 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 chorus of the mom's in the factory and then well john the baptist after torturing a thief looks up at his hero the commander-in-chief saying tell me great hero but please make it brief is there a hole for me to get sick in that again? That's another one where I was like, okay, you know, wh- whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly what any of this is supposed to be, but it, yeah. again, it sounds interesting.
0: And when I was um, thinking about this in, you know, for my, uh, my original paper, I took that pretty uh, literally. So, you know, taking the, the commander in chief to be president at the time, so I, I, I identified it right as uh, as Lyndon Johnson,
1: Lyndon Johnson, right,
0: um, which then uh, was uh, gratifying when I'm watching uh, the I'm not There" film. And they're, as they're quoting that, they splash a picture of Lyndon Johnson. I said, ah, I nailed it. That's <laughs> um, maybe as, as explicit as he gets as a commentary on the Vietnam War. I don't know.
1: Right, right. I mean they said t- people have pointed and they said this is probably the the only real time he's sort of specifically uh mentioned. Well again in the in the next verse, mentioned something that you could say is almost directly a Vietnam reference. Yeah. Which again, considering that Bob Dylan was such a spokesperson, kind of although of course he would claim he wasn't, for right. this stuff in the sixties, uh that it's amazing that there's really um you like know, maybe one or two references across the song directly referencing yeah. the the greatest uh, issue in, in in American life at that time. And he said, the commander the in chief answers him while chasing a fly, saying death to all those who would whimper and cry. At dropping a barbell, he points at the sky saying, the sun's not yellow, it's chicken. Now, yeah. the death to all those who would whimper and cry sounds, you know, an awful lot like stop all this weeping, swallow your pride. Yeah, it's, a, it's another authority figure telling people stop your bitching, just stop complaining about everything. But then the phrase, the sun's not yellow, it's chicken. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a phrase that has lived on in the culture. And it's one of those that I'm like, I don't exactly know what it means, if it's necessarily terribly profound or it's just funny. But, man, I have seen so many people quote that as like, oh, yeah, man, the sun's not yellow, it's chicken. Like it's it's some really revealed wisdom. Well, my take on it was and
0: this is where I can get into the the apocalypse of it all is that um, I was really reading this whole uh, song next to the, the book of Daniel. And that's kind of a, a rollicking, everything's wrong kind of story as well. And that's really written about a particular um, military uh, event that's also the basis for the Hanukkah. And in, in Daniel, the, the writer is trying to write about this king who's come in. And um, he's he's desecrated the temple. This is a king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, about 168 BCE. And um, this this uh, king seems to think he's God, and he's making all these proclamations and and wants to be to to control the sky. And uh, and so I kind of took that as as a way of thinking about what happens when when a ruler just thinks that they are unbounded by reality, you know, they Mm -hmm. could ending that the sky changes color or, you know, you know, can turn the sky into a chicken. I don't know. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but I, this, I thought both of these lines are really interesting because they kind of take some of the piss out of this commander in chief. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even he has a, um, John the Baptist is looks at his at the commander in chief as a hero, and all he wants to do is get sick in a hole.
1: I I always figured that if the sun's not yellow, its chicken meant anything. Was that admit that that someone is trying to tell you that what you're seeing isn't what you're seeing? Yeah. You know, it's, like it's, uh, gaslighting, you believe, as we'd say. Yeah, today. yeah, right, exactly. You believe me, your own your own lion eyes kind of thing, where it's like yeah, it's which, not, that the sun's not that. It's this other thing, which just sounds like gibberish, but it's someone trying to sell you on it.
0: Now, isn't that the story of Vietnam? Really? Yeah. Right? It's it's not a disaster. Everything is going according to plan. We 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 uh had to destroy the village to save it.
1: Yeah, we're inches away from victory. We just need we're another inches, one million yeah. troops. To, yeah. get, to get us there we only have to spend another you know 80 billion dollars to get it done and stuff like that but yeah it's a yeah 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 um again that that line just, and again the way uh, Bob sort of cocksure delivery it's it's the, the confidence really does put you across you know oh and for it's, sure it's that it doesn't it, it again it, this the, the the line could just be sort of nothing if you really want to examine it but the way he says it it sounds like oh my god i've just been pointed out some amazing thing has just been pointed out to me now So the, the piece about the apocalypse, Bob Dylan and the apocalypse, I mean, what is the, where was the connective thread between this song and what you wrote?
0: Well, there's a style of writing about history as it's happening that, that occurs in some of the, some of the apocalypses. And this would be true of the book of of Revelation as well. Um, But the, the apocalypse is like the book of Daniel. They're trying to, to, essentially say that um what you're seeing unfolding in history is not the real story that history is kind of crazy and if you're expecting that um god's in control of history you might despair because you look at this and it says this this doesn't look like god's in control of everything right we're we're you know we're we're not supposed to be invaded by these uh by these other cultures and certainly nobody's supposed to slaughter a pig on our on our altar or anything like that, and yet it's happening. And the move that the apocalypse uh, literature makes is to say, you're not seeing the big picture. And there are gonna be some special guys in history who are gonna get that picture, but it's gonna be encoded. And um, when you know what the real interpretation is, it's gonna make a lot of sense. And there's a line from Desolation Row that uh, that I make the connection with as well, where um, where he says, you know, I had to rearrange their rearrange their faces and give them all another name, and that's <laughs> exactly what you see in the book of book of Revelation. You see in the book of Daniel. And I think you know that's coming across here. I think you know he's he's to a degree talking about some people you might know, but not in a way you'd ever be able to recognize. And so I just thought it was it was sort of a way of commenting on history without. Having to be very explicit about what he was commenting on, and and that's why we talk about these these songs, you know, sixty years later.
1: Hmm. Now, where did you deliver? You said you delivered this, uh, like, yeah, like you read it say, aloud. What was the context for that?
0: Uh, there's a, a a annual Jewish studies conference that is um, housed in. It started at Creighton University, and in, um, in Nebraska. Um, and has since then uh, incorporated itself into some of the UNO system. But um, I've presented at this conference a, a number of times. I think four or five times now, almost as many times as I've, I've seen Dylan. Um, but the 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 theme of the conference was called uh, "350 Years of Judaism in American Popular Culture." Hmm and um a really very very cool uh conference um it was where i learned that the first portrayal of hitler on in know in an american movie was by one of the three stooges <laughs> bo howard was the first person to play hitler on screen you know?
1: <laughs> that's uh that's an incredibly random data point
0: it is but who would have ever thunk it there yeah Yeah. And so I when I got saw that this uh, was the theme of the conference, I said, well, I've got a paper from my undergraduate years that I could I could um, revise and and present. And the thing was that I had finished that paper, like I said, in in college. So we're probably talking about 1988 or something like that. And uh, I kind of concluded in that original paper with slow train coming. And so that's where it takes on a whole new Christian apocalyptic spin. Just you know, with that 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 uh, image of the slow train. Which um, uh, just rereading my paper for today, I remembered that the uh, the term "slow train" appears in the liner notes for Highway 61 Revisited three times.
1: So, oh wow! Yeah, okay. so there's a
0: connection there already. Um, but I kind of you know since I wasn't really going beyond that uh, period. You know, I, I I like many of the songs on Slow Train Coming, um, and there's some great apocalyptic stuff in there. Um, but it's it's definitely from this one perspective. It's from this this you know set of Christian ideas, and there's not as much of that that creativity and that that uh, that bricolage, that putting things together that does I think is at the heart of. Dylan's genius and so I think you know the songs are great but they weren't really speaking to me in the ways that you know this song or you know hard Rain's going to fall did and so when I came back to revise this for this this uh, conference that I and this was in 2004 that I gave this paper I was able to go back and and just get you know another 20 years uh, including all the stuff off of um, the um, bootleg series, uh, especially the third volume there where you get things like uh, foot of pride and why i willing to tell mm-hmm, a uh, series of dreams. And, um, uh, the real gem off of there for me was foot of pride. And I just said, oh, that does all the things I like about Dylan and the apocalypse all in one place. <laughs> oh, so, so that's, uh, that became kind of the crown jewel for my, my revision, Um, Although I did have to conclude that um, with the note that um, Time Out of um, Love and Theft, which had just recently came out, um, did have this uncanny prediction about, um, we might say, about um, uh, 9-11. Sure did. Sure did. And um, Honest With Me uh, has the line about, uh, you know, some things are too terrible to be true. And it's said in the city that never sleeps. Yep, yep. Yep, he, he's, he's always ahead of his time, isn't
1: he? He's always magnetic north, as they say. Yeah. Uh, how was the the piece received? Could, or could you tell? I mean, was there a chance for the audience to give oh, feedback it, it, or talk
0: to you about it? it yeah, yeah. And um, I think especially since this was, you know, it's meant to be a very open conference that was not just for academics. Uh, it's It's really supposed to be about how do we get some of the ways we talk about things in the academy out into the public? But um, the big, the funniest lines from that were, were about building big use of universities to study in. And so all the academics got a huge uh, laugh out of, uh, out of that being part of the apocalypse.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I, yeah. I, you know, look, I would never guess uh, to, to, I've never presumed to know what Bob thinks, obviously, but I also get the feeling I think he would love that. I think he would love that you spoke in that context. I think I think that would just tickle him. You know, well, I, mean,
0: I, I sure would be happy if that was the case.
1: I, he's got. I mean, he has an abiding interest in his heritage. Yeah, uh, and I think that would. I, I I feel like that's the kind of thing that he would show up to in like a hoodie and a hat. Yeah. you know so nobody would recognize him he, he may nobody, very well have yeah he might have been there you know? might have been there never know never know Yeah. so <laughs> well that's terrific i mean that's just great to be able to to take you know this and then transform it into this piece that you wrote and then you know extrapolate it from there get to deliver it that's uh that yeah. is really, that's really really cool um, and I, so,
0: I had also i had to note that and so i had um a mentor when i was in college that i wrote this this uh piece for and um he pulled me aside after he had um, graded the piece and uh, I did very well on it. But he, he said to me back in 1988 or whatever it was, he said, now, if you ever get a chance to present this at a conference, he said, you, you should call this, um, uh, oh, now I've, I've lost the train of thought. It's all over now, baby blue. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I revised it, I had to say, and you know, thank you to my to my mentor. And I had to apologize to him that I, I stuck with the original title, which was, oh, right. well, mama, could this really be the end?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but That's I did good. send him
0: a copy of the of the piece when I got it published. So, and he really- Very
1: good. Very good. Excellent. So, okay. So uh, the song continues on. It says, the king of the Philistines, his soldiers to save, puts jawbones on their tombstones. There we got the tombstone in there. Yeah. And now on, on Bob com, it says, flatters their graves. I've always heard him sing flattens that's what their, i their hear graves. as well yeah i mean flatters their graves i mean that's that makes even less sense than anything even else less sense,
0: especially if you're putting jawbones on their tombstones yeah that's...
1: how do you how do you flatter a grave exactly flatten the yeah. grave feels like you're, you're 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 tamping the dirt down kind of thing. To me, that's what a flattening agreement Right, was. almost to to
0: erase them. so that Exactly,
1: you... right. There. Yes, completely. Yeah. And then he puts the Pied Pipers in prison and fattens the slaves and then sends them out to the jungle. And there you go, fattening the slaves and sending them out to the jungle. How could you hear any other meaning in 1965? Yeah. Other than what that is. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And of course, there you get the rhyme between flatten and fatten. So I think that's yep. Just there you
1: go. right exactly. exactly yeah
0: yeah uh, and that it, it's so bleak and so almost um stated matter of factly uh i don't think there's really any spin on those last couple of lines there
1: and putting the putting the pied pipers in prison um on the one hand i you know i kind of hear like well is that is, is that you're putting in prison the people that are reporting on this, the people that mm-hmm. are commenting on it. But Pied Pipers are, they, they, they're not commenters. They're Pied Pipers are leading. Yeah. Uh, leading, fact, leading children. Leading children. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, I, you know, I don't exactly totally track with how that, how that lines up. But again, I don't even know if it's really supposed to exactly. Uh, and then he continues on Gypsy Davy, They're another character from an old timey folk song mm-hmm. uh with a blowtorch. He burns down their camps with his faithful slave Pedro behind him. He tramps with a fantastic collection of stamps to win friends and influence his uncle. Uh, that that's another section where I'm like, I okay. okay. I just throw up my <laughs> hands on that
0: too. Um,
1: I mean, I think there's
0: there's something about you know going into the jungle and burning out the camps. You know that the, the destroying the village to save it, but then it really gets surreal after that.
1: Oh, Lord. Yeah. The geometry yeah. of innocence, flesh on the bone, causes Galileo's math book to get thrown at Delilah, who's sitting worthlessly alone, but the tears on her cheeks are from laughter. So you've got Galileo and Delilah yeah. combined. uh, And of course, Galileo's math book which is presumably things that he's working on. And the fra- "the geometry of innocence, that's another one of those phrases. I that, love again, that phrase. I don't know what that means. Yeah, but. it doesn't make any literal sense, but it sounds really cool. Geometry, yeah. And in fact, one of our guests uses that as a handle over on Twitter. And it's very oh, memorable. Man. Geometry of innocence. It just, it sounds very profound.
0: And every now and again, I just have to sit and wonder a little bit, just what is the geometry of innocence? So it's what would that even look like? Um, but then to pair that with flesh on the bone, which is about as opposite, I think, as yep. you can get from
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and you're also falling in love with the just the internal rhymes of it. Like you mentioned, yeah. the flattens and fattens and then the throne and alone. Like it's all just kind of coming at you so fast that it's, again, it's also charming. You're trying to, trying to like almost orient yourself and figure out yeah. who all these people around you that are flying around. And it's all just... And then, but she's laughing, she's crying, but she's laughing like, okay. And then now I wish I could give brother Bill his great thrill. Now in on Bob Dylan.com, brother Bill is capitalized as if that's a proper name, brother, yeah. Bill, as opposed to my brother Bill, you know, like a lowercase brother Bill, but I would give brother Bill his great thrill. I would set him in chains at the top of the hill, then set him out for some pillars and Cecil B. DeMille. He could die happily ever after. This is my favorite verse in this song. Okay. Is this, because this is 1965. Cecil B. DeMille has been dead for a couple of years, but he's still relatively well-known. His most famous film arguably would be the 10 commandments sure. from 1956. So that's when then, you know, relatively similar. You can imagine a young 15 year old Bob Dylan having seen the movie, but you would have to know that Cecil B. DeMille was kind of known for this spectacle, almost garish spectacle. And the idea that this brother, Bill, his greatest thrill would just be sort of made having a big deal made about him, a spectacle made about him. That's what he, he could die happily ever after. If someone would just make a big deal about his life, such a big deal that we're going to get Cecil B. DeMille to sort of get some pillars and build these sets and get all these extras and make a movie about brother bill. And to me, it is such a great cutting remark about this brother bill guy that we're just introduced to in this verse. And then he's forgotten right after this, but yeah. man, to me, it feels like it, man, that is, there is somebody in Bob Dylan's life who is brother bill. And man, that is a cutting remark about them, whoever that might be.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and I don't, I mm-hmm. I can't peel the the onion any further back to figure out who this brother Bill is, but the idea that that his big dream would be to be in a simulation, I guess, a uh, mm-hmm. set version of his life, uh, and then he could die happy. Now, why he has to be in chains is—is is he going to die up there because he's chained up in this set? I don't know.
1: I okay, so that's funny. I always took that. A little bit as that it's part of the costume that, uh, that like he's playing like a because if you said pillars, that mm-hmm. uh, is kind of an old timey sort of like he's a Hercules kind of thing, not that Cecil B. DeMille made Hercules, maybe a
0: Samson. If we get, Del- yeah, like a earlier. Samson
1: type, yes, yeah. it, right. If we just had Delilah a second ago, that kind of thing, like it's, it's, it's Cecil B. DeMille shooting like a sword and sandals epic, and that's right. what Brother Bill is the star of. And I, you know, I, I love it because as a movie fan. Is even the early days when I first bought this record? I caught the reference. I was like, Oh, yeah, sure. Cecil B. DeMille. But I have to wonder to people that don't know movies to this level. Cause I mean, now Cecil B. DeMille's been gone 60, 60 years and his films are really not watched much anymore. Other than the 10 commandments, right? You have to, for, for a lot of people are like, What is it? What does that even, what does it even mean? You know, <laughs> like what, you mm-hmm. know, who's Cecil B. DeMille and why would he do that? um but uh but i yeah i just love that i just love how much bob can describe someone we've just met in four lines and you're like man that's like all my all i need to know about this guy
0: yeah and i love these like i said at the top of the shows all of these verses they they get going and things seem to be really bleak and then there's almost this punchline at at the end of it so delilah is is crying but then the tears on her cheek are from laughter and, and and we're setting this uh, brother Bill to be, you know, in this movie set, but it's it's the the greatest thing that ever happened to him.
1: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's depends. <laughs> he could die happily ever after. It's, yeah, I, I just and I love the way. He sort of Bob spits out that Leslie. He could die. Right. Happily he's not ever living after. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, he's not <laughs> living
0: happily ever after. It's just okay. Now I can I can die happy.
1: Oh, it's great. Which I, might just love... happen now,
0: especially if this is Samson.
1: Yeah. Oh man, it's terrific. So and then he continues on where Ma Rainey and Beethoven again two characters from from history slapped together in, in ways they would never they would never be once unwrapped their bedroll. So they're the you know, well, tuba players now rehearse around the flagpole and the national bank at a profit sell road maps for the soul to the old folks home and the college. Yeah. And then now I could wish you, I wish I could write you a melody so plain that you hold your dear lady from going insane that can ease you and cool you and cease the pain of your useless and pointless knowledge. And then he ends up with the mamas in the factory. So man, um this is I think is this the only part of the song where you've got an where you've got an eye, I? I think the rest of the song, right? Oh yeah. I mean, which is the refrain.
0: Right. But this is the only, well, I wish I could give brother Bill his big thrills. So I guess. Oh, that's true. He just, there. he just says that.
1: Yeah. Um, but he's talking to someone directly here. Uh, <laughs> I could ease you and cool you. and of your useless and pointless knowledge, which is, you know, a terrible yeah. thing to know you're, your, your head is loaded up with a bunch of useless stuff. It's again, it doesn't make any literal sense, but boy, is it fun.
0: Yeah. And, and could this be Miss Lonely? It, it, it's almost mm. a similar critique going back to like a rolling stone. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, you know, coming from the academic uh, uh, world, I think these are, an, an, you know, another kind of dig at academia, which uh, which Dylan kind of has a habit of doing which is why that that line about uh, building universities to using money from sin to build big universities to study and got a big big laugh at that conference. But (laughs) these two lines here that are in in parallel on the verses um, about selling roadmaps to the soul, both to the old folks home and the college, and then the banks are going to make a profit off of that. So sort of suggesting that yeah, kids in college, they they need to buy a clue, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And then just I think, and then just that cutting line at the end that uh could ease you and cool you and cease the pain of your useless and pointless knowledge. So what what is making her going to go insane? It's it's that she has knowledge that's pointless and uh she can't do anything with it. And it has undermined the whole, I guess, the whole purpose of becoming educated and now she has nothing to do with that
1: yeah yeah i i love the like I, I love the uh the comparing the old folks home and the college or two uh, yeah. two places presumably of of no nobody's thinking anymore people are just kind of wasting away uh and so yeah you talk about going to the cut co- you wrote, you're buying a roadmap for the soul you're you're giving instructions on right. how to live at the old folks home and the college and then of course at the college maybe that's where you're Head is being filled with useless and pointless knowledge.
0: Well, I certainly have been accused of that, in my, in my life <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And, and, and there is a certain pain to it. I'll, I'll also admit that. Yes. Yeah.
1: And again, you've got this amazing the like Michael Bloomfield guitar going. Oh yeah. In the background, just bang, you bang, 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 I mean, just un- unreal. Now, uh, live wise. Uh, this has not been performed that much, considering it's only been done 169 times yeah, since not 1965. Yeah, it has been last yeah. done in 19 last done in 2006. That's not very much. It has appeared on a couple of live albums. It was done on real live, and the version outside of the the this original one, the one I'm most familiar with is the one from the MTV Unplugged set because it opens the set. And I mentioned this on other episodes that back when I worked at a video store. I used to work in the in the day and it would be me and the the manager and he would disappear into the back room for like two hours to do the, 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 the previous night's receipts and just do whatever other stuff, what he, you know, he wanted to do. So I basically was in, in the store by myself and I could put on the closed circuit TVs, whatever I wanted. And almost every day I put on the set, okay. the Bob Dylan unplugged VHS. And so I got to know these versions of the song so well. That in my head I almost hear the unplugged one more than I hear the Highway 61 okay. version. So that's the <laughs> And he doesn't, it's pretty much the same song. I mean, obviously it's done acoustically, but it's he doesn't change the words or anything like that. Now, there the one other alternate version that I really enjoy. Uh, have you heard the one with the Chambers Brothers on it? I have not. Which what album's that on? That's on one of the bootleg series. And okay. it's you've got this this uh like this blues band, the Chambers Brothers singing uh, singing along with the chorus when Bob okay. does the Mom is in the factory and you've got these guys singing along and it is so fun. It oh. is. It gives it such a great lift. Now, I could see why Bob maybe didn't use it because it would be the only song on the whole record that's not his, that, is, that has another voice on it. Okay. And so I could see why it maybe doesn't, it just didn't fit with what they wanted. But boy, is it fun to hear them these guys said, uh, and this was like, these empty voices singing along. Mom's in the factories. You ain't got no shoot. It's so, it's such a fun take that I almost wish they had used it.
0: Uh, I, I haven't um, heard other live versions, but I always have this, this um, piece in my head. I think, especially after the line about um, fatten the slaves and send them out in the jungle. That makes me want to hear like an all um, percussion version of it where it's just mm. um you know bongos and um snares and things like that <laughs> you could almost do this whole thing without any um guitars and just and and just do it almost like a um, beatnik um uh, uh, <laughs> style there hey man yeah but <laughs>
1: um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, by the way, I just want—I do want to mention live wise. Uh, yeah. It was only done six times in 1965, and then not, or seven times in 1965, and then not again for 20 years. Wow! Until he pulled it out in the 80s, and that's the version. One of the versions that ended up on the real live record. But okay, that, isn't that amazing that he never yeah. decided to do this again? Because 20 I think years this of is,
0: your- yeah, this is this is a. I think this is a barn burner, and you know, I would. <laughs> kind of put it musically with the uh, subterranean homesick blues and Maggie's farm as just, you know, crank up the band and let it rip. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and it's, of course those think... are
0: both real staples. And why this one is not, I don't know.
1: Yeah. That's strange. Right. I said it's it's a really, really fun tune. Again, you mentioned the um I'm not there movie. They they sing it in that movie. Yeah, Richie, Richie, Haven's. Richie Haven sings it. And yeah, and, and I really
0: like that. that version of it as well.
1: Yeah. Um. So again, it's it's part of the part of the thread there. But yeah, it's just it's it's a song yeah. that for some reason just has not been that threaded into the repertoire, despite no. it being so fun and just such a again just such a yeah. blast to listen to. And-, and I think it's just
0: instantaneously memorable. Those those lines just stick in my head from I think from the moment I heard it.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's and it, yeah. it's really really fun to listen to. And yeah. uh, said so even again even works even the sort of the acoustic guys without. the <clears> – <throat> Excuse me, without that Michael Bloomfield guitar, it still kind of works. Yeah. They kind of replicate it in in their own way. But yeah, man, it's just, it's really, really fun. And again, it's, it's Bob is able to present something seemingly very dark and Mm -hmm. ominous and even violent, but with kind of just this wonderful, you know, kind of, sneering kind of you know sarcastic delivery, I mean, much similar to highway sixty one yeah, it's got that same kind of thing, which is again the second song on side two this is the second song on side right. one so they they kind of match up really really quite well, but man yeah. they do so, and
0: and that i think i uh, uh I think that highway sixty one is actually my favorite song on the on the album, which is saying something uh and but they both have this you know this kind of propulsion uh you know course highway sixty one uh, ends with the apocalypse as well, and the, third, <laughs> the next world war. And I, I do think, though, you know, that and Tombstone Blues and Desolation Row um, are all are kind of all of a piece in that way. Just just watching things fall apart, and you know, just being along for the ride.
1: I wonder what that's like
0: yeah <laughs> so. no I, i'm sure no no any any correspondence to our modern day and age is purely coincidental
1: exactly exactly <laughs> so
0: yeah.
1: yeah i mean it's just an absolutely terrific terrific song so well uh derek thank you so much for for coming thank on the bro. show to talk about this again i can't uh, believe we taken this long to get to this really fun song but this is just terrific
0: Happy to fill in that gap for you. I could I could talk about this all day. So what a what a great treat to get to talk to you about the truly one of my favorite songs in the the Dylan corpus and and one just I I always come back to here forty years later I'm still finding new things in it.
1: It's always amazing. So before we sign off here, I got to ask you our standard exit question for new guests, which is if there's any album or any Bob recording again. I'm, I keep saying album, and I mean say expanding it to recording because now we have like the uh, philosophy of modern song audiobook book yeah. included in, in that uh, selection. If there's any Bob recording you could sit in on, what would you like to have heard be a fly on the wall? Boy.
0: Well, uh, originally I was going to go real classic and say the, the highway 61, but I changed my mind and I'm going to say, I want to
1: sit in with the Wilburys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah a bunch of people will pick that. You don't need to explain it. You're getting petty. You're getting Bob. You're getting Roy Orbison. You're getting. Yeah. I mean, and just, you know,
0: that just looked like the, the most fun you could ever have with that bunch of guys.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Well, again, Derek, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I appreciate it, Rob. And um uh, looking forward to what you, what you got coming up next.
1: All right. So, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Pod Dylan and any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part, please go to patreon.com slash FW podcast, like these fine folks did Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joachim Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein. So thanks so much for that, everybody. And uh, so that's going to do it. Thank you for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Cecil B. DeMille, movie pioneer and one of the most colorful figures in the history of
0: the cinema, is dead of a heart ailment at the age of 77. These scenes were taken on location during the filming of one of the lavish pageants of biblical and ancient history that won him perhaps his greatest fame. They recall the personal flair that made him unforgettable as a person. They recall, too, the colossal spectacles produced on a lavish scale throughout the career that was marked for success at its beginning in 1913 with his production of The Squaw Man, one of the first full-length feature films. DeMille garnered countless honors and enormous personal fame. A showman extraordinary who set into motion thousands of actors and extras for one scene when necessary, whose name became practically a synonym for the sumptuous and sensational. Cecil B. DeMille.